Welcome to another edition of Rebellion Research's educational series. Today, we're very excited to have Yale Law School's Logan Byrne, close friend of mine, brilliant mind, who's come to talk to us today about George Washington. Thank you, Logan. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's been our pleasure, and we are so excited to learn. First off, was George Washington a scientist? Was he someone who get along with our readership? So, you know, I describe Washington as our entrepreneur-in-chief. Even before he was our commander-in-chief, he really um, spearheaded American innovation. So he not only uh, embodied what it was to be an American, innovative American, he also, um, he practiced it. So, you know, I'm not sure he, I describe him as a scientist, but he was really into science-based thinking and also trying new things. So, um, you know, part of Washington's, um, the, the, the myth of Washington is sort of, he was born very wealthy. He, he really wasn't. He was, um, he was born of some you know, modest means. I had thought he was born extremely wealthy, actually. No, I'm not. I stand he, corrected. Yeah, so he was born of modest means, and when his father passed away when he was 13, he sort of didn't, never got to have the sort of, um, upper crust um, education that his, that his, you know, his half siblings would have, which would basically mean for then uh, going to Europe for school. So he, did that, he, sorry, did that contribute to his good relationship with Alexander Hamilton, you think? Shared? Uh... Yeah, yes, it did. So they, they shared um, in that, um, that sort of upbringing where they sort of missed out and they felt they missed out and sort of had a bit of a chip on their shoulder about not being, you know, like Jefferson or, or another um, of their contemporaries who had this sort of classical education. But at the same time, it made Washington see how brilliant Hamilton was. And Washington was, he was brilliant in his own right. He was brilliant enough to pick people, um, a lot like you, you do, and sort of picking really smart people and putting them around you and being able to sort of play off one another's minds. And that's why Washington was so, so successful. So he went from being of modest means to becoming the wealthiest American of his time. Uh, amassing a fortune um, of, if it's, it's hard to bring it to today's dollars, but around 525 million. Um, some of that was through marriage. Um, he, he married uh, Martha Custis um, and inherited and received a lot of money from her, but he took that money that he um, received through marriage and made it so much more. And the way he did it was by innovating. Um, this came in many forms. It was whether it was experimenting with crop rotation. So, you know, again, head of the science of his times and trying to mix the soil in different crops so it would not be um, depleted. Um, it, it ended up doing, creating other little businesses around Mount Vernon. Uh, for example, founding a distillery. So you have excess grain. What do you do with it? Um, he created a distillery to start using wow. more money. So this is, he was an innovator in chief um, in, in sort of a very business sense. But then going even further, he was politically incredibly innovative. And that's why we have our country. Uh, well, I mean, his humility for stepping down is one for the ages. And you know, one of the reasons I admire George Washington as our you know, founding father, to, to step down when he could have been an emperor and to not take the power that was offered to him. I, I think it's a wonderful example. And I, I, you know, I, it, it's, I don't know very much about George Washington. And, and one of the reasons I love being friends with you is I learned so much from you. And first of all, I had no idea that Washington was one of the wealthiest people of his time. I mean, I had just assumed he was just another wealthy founder. But uh, to know that is totally uh, actually shocking. Was his primary business agriculture? 
It was. Um, he, so Mount Vernon was sort of the, the bulk of his, his wealth. Um, and also not to shy away, you know, he, he did, did own a lot of his wealth was in owning people. So he, he did have a, many, many, many slaves. Um, he sort of did see the, um, sort of the hypocrisy there. And he did make for, their, they, for them to be freed in his will. Um, and he said, it's too little too late. And I want to gloss over it. But, you know, that was a big part of his property were, were human beings. Um, but there was all focused at Mount Vernon, um, with, which is increasing his lands, um, as well as his businesses operating there. Um, but yeah, so it's what, what I think is so interesting about Washington is sort of his, his innovation sort of appeared in many different forms throughout his life. So like you were saying before, he could have been king. Um, and in fact, they, there was a conspiracy, the Newburgh conspiracy in Newburgh, New York. Um, there was some talk of going, marching on Congress and possibly creating a new separate state in which Washington might be king. Uh, Washington, um, he goes and they start having this meeting as officers towards the end of the war without him. And they're in a, um, in a hall in, in Newburgh, New York. And they're discussing how they're going to march on Congress and, and take their money or take some land and create a new subcountry of some sort in which the military is in control. And Washington walks in uninvited and he starts reading um, a letter from Congress that is some sort of lackluster letter about how, you know, we'll pay you eventually. We're, you know, we're out of funds, but he's struggling to read it. Um, instead, he goes into his, his jacket pocket and takes out glasses. Now for you and I, we, reading glasses, you know, everyone has them eventually. For then, it was seen as a real, almost a, a deformity, sort of a very um, sort of shameful and unmanly to have to use reading glasses. But for Washington to show his generals that he needed glasses, um, he says off the cuff, oh, forgive me, I've gone blind in the service of my country. It brought the officers to tears. And that saved the Republic, many would say, um, because rather than sort of going behind Washington's back, going against his wishes to create some sort of military section of the country, they saw all he had given um, this great man, and that, that quashed the Newburgh conspiracy just by pulling out his spectacles and saying that. Um, but yet Washington, he was an incredible man. So you, you sort of, you read about history, and he seems, he seems unreal. He seems sort of like a demigod, What's interesting about him is that even in his own time, he was also seen that way. Um, and he, was, he was in such high regard that he was the only president unanimously elected. Um, he was almost everyone adored him. And, and they did because he gave up so much. He, so he, had, you know, he was a principled man who was going to fight for liberty um, regardless of what it cost him. Um, and, and sort of going back to our, our theme of, of, of the hour here, that Washington as innovator was, he was not like everyone else. So all these other leaders, military leaders throughout history, you look how they operate. They, okay, when you're, you have a battle, technically who is on the land after the battle wins that battle. And every, virtually every leader, there are some exceptions, but you know, virtually every leader would go and um, they, they win the battle, control the land, that'd be a victory for them, on, on, on. And then in the end, they become the leader. Um, Washington sort of turned this all on, on its head. And instead, he kept losing battles left and right. He was innovative politically as well. So what he was looking at the war, and this sort of changed warfare in many ways going forward, as a, a, a PR battle. And this is sort of the idea of winning hearts and minds. So he, he, he saw war not as 
I'm military leader, hold the land after the battle. It was no, no, it was how do I, one, win more Americans over to the cause for the fight for liberty, and two, drain the coffers of the British government. So he's viewing it in political and economic terms, which was quite radical for the time. So this meant he kept losing battles, but he would just, he would fight and then retreat to keep his army intact and not suffer too many casualties because that would be very bad for morale. And also if he gets wiped out, then there's no longer draining the British coffers um, and keeps, keeps retreating, retreating, retreating. And he's fighting instead a PR battle and he's innovative in warfare as well. So I, I think he's just a fascinating character. There's so much to learn from him. Wow. I, you know, I, I had no idea. So he essentially did not ever view any individual battle as a must win. Every individual battle was just a piece of a much larger puzzle that he was constructing. He, he did view it very much that way. Um, there were some very crucial battles, you know, the, the, the Battle of Trenton, where there's the famous crossing the Delaware painting, you know, where they're on the, the, the boat and he's standing. Um, well, he would never be doing that because he'd probably fall off the boat, but you know, the, the, you know, the, the picture I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, he, before, the night before that sneak attack, this was a uh, Christmas day, uh, 1776, um, in which they had a uh, sneak attack. They had lost so many battles and morale was getting so low and the British were chasing them to our capital, which was Philadelphia at the time, that he needed to have some sort of victory to show for. And he was scribbling, um, his soldiers wrote of him scribbling on paper over and over again something. And they finally went back afterwards to his tent to see what he was writing. And almost in a manic way, he was writing victory or death, victory or death, victory or death over and over again. So he did see Trenton, and of course the, the great sneak attack on the, the Hessian mercenaries, uh, the great um, military victory for the United States. And then again, they repeated that victory in the Battle of Princeton a couple of days later. Um, so they did, they did see certain battles as very necessary, but you're absolutely right. It was much, part, much more part of a broader puzzle uh, of how we keep up morale and how this fits into uh, winning the war, even if it means losing battle after battle. Wow, you know, it's amazing. So often Washington is compared to Julius Caesar, but really when you think about it, they're actually polar opposites. You know, uh, when yeah. one took for more power, the other one did not. You know, when one was obsessed with conquering land, the other one was obsessed with really conquering people's views on liberty. So if, if anything, Washington is infinitely more impressive than Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was nothing compared to our founding father. You know, I, I love the line from Hamilton, next to Washington, they all look small. And yeah, that's yeah. how they feel the time. And, I, and I, I agree with them to this day. Yeah, all, everything I've ever read, you know, has uh, you know, backed it up that, you know, during his time, Washington was the utmost celebrity. I mean, everyone was excited to be near him. Oh, he was. He was the first American superstar. Um, he, everyone adored him. He was, he almost couldn't. Um, you couldn't criticize him in public. Um, and Washington, again, sort of going back to what we were saying before, where he didn't have the schooling of Jefferson. Um, he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder about not having this sort of classical education. He would rewrite his letters over and over again. To where did he grow up? What was his uh, you know, background? In Virginia. So he was um, in, part, you know, in Virginia, uh, you know, not far from Mount Vernon, where he ended up. That's where he, he grew up. Um, he went to, um, he was in Barbados for... Um, a short time because his, his brother was sick. That's where he caught smallpox. Well, so uh, like Hamilton, he also had uh, you know childhood time in the Caribbean. Yes, he did. That's right. Um, it wasn't so much fun for, well, it wasn't that fun for Hamilton either, but it wasn't no. fun for Washington. He caught smallpox while there, um, which was 
horrible then, but it ended up being really important later because he, that meant he was immune. So when the smallpox was ravaging the, the American and the British forces during the war, we lost far more soldiers to disease than we ever did to battle. Uh, Washington was, he was immune. And um, one of his most important um, decisions throughout the war, more important than any military decision, was actually getting his troops inoculated for smallpox. Wow. How, how did he get them inoculated in the 1770s? Yeah, and what? yeah they, it was going way back. So um, it was controversial then. So they had, a, um, for India, in India for thousands of years, they, they realized that you could... Um, it's kind of, it's, it's gross, but it, it was effective where if you would scratch a healthy person and then put some of the, the, the pus from a smallpox victim into the, the, the scratch, the person who would, that was scratched would get a mild case of smallpox. Um, but the catch is they could still spread it during that time. So if you sort of give them, give them a mild case, quarantine them for two weeks, um, and then once they're over it, they're immune. Um, however, if you would sort of get, get the old way, you inhale it from someone coughing nearby or you, you, know, you touch your eyes or something, um, you get that way, that's sort of the deadly way. Um, so, what, so this was developed, known for, in India for thousands of years. It was very new to Europe um, during Washington's time, so it was very controversial. Um, and so a lot of states, like the New York um, State, forbade inoculation and they arrested doctors trying to inoculate Washington's troops when he was in New York. Uh, Washington... He went against them. So he uh, originally followed their recommendations, um, but then uh, he, he kept seeing more and more need for it. Actually, Martha helped convince him because Martha, uh, she defied Washington's orders and he said, don't get inoculated, just stay home at Mount Vernon, don't come visit me. She ignored him, went and got inoculated and went to visit him at the, at the front lines. Um, and she just showed him again, which he already believed he had his son's inoculated as well, um, her stepson. Um, where he, it just showed again that this works. So he went against um, this New York state and he has troops inoculated um, during uh, this is the winter when they're at uh, Valley Forge and, and the winter after as well. Um, and so come spring, the American soldiers are immune to smallpox while the British soldiers are still getting it. And that helps turn the tide. Wow. Wow, amazing. I had no idea that it was so important. I, I'd known about, you know, Lord Jeffrey Amherst using uh, smallpox laden blankets on the Indians, you know, you know, but uh, I did not know that smallpox was such an important part of uh, the Revolutionary War. Well, you know, a lot. They, they, they were shooting um, arrows with smallpox. So, of course, they had guns at the time, but the British were trying to use smallpox against the Americans in German warfare, um, like, much like they did with the, the Indians. Um, and so what they so they would, do, they would dip arrows in, you know, whatever from a smallpox victim and shoot it into the, into the troops so that they probably would get hit and get, they get infected and they could spread it to everyone else. And with the, the, um, the British were more resistant to smallpox than we were because living in dense Europe, it was more likely to be passed around while the United States was more wilderness. So we were sort of, you know, the conversation we're having today about, you know, COVID and sort of rural versus urban um, and to the, the Americans were more prone to getting it. Um, so Washington saw this again, being a, a science-based guy, he looked the evidence and said, Hey, we, the only way to counteract this, the British germ warfare is to be immune. And that's where he went with inoculation. Oh, it's been a lot of fun. I've got to ask, so will Yale Law School be physical or are you guys doing virtual classes this fall? 
We are offering both. So we give uh, students the option to um, meet in person or, um, or be virtual. Um, some classes, I will be doing a mix for my class. Um, we will be meeting uh, sometimes, uh, particularly in the courtyard or something like that during the, the nice months. Um, and then afterward, you know, most of the time we'll be speaking uh, virtually. Yeah, no, I really appreciated you having me give a, a guest uh, lecture at your class a few years ago. That was a, a lot of fun. I know, you, I, I, I know you focus on financial law and you work for Sullivan and Cromwell, but you have a passion for natural language processing. And with our last few minutes, I would love to know, you know how quickly is the NLP revolution happening in the legal landscape? Right. So I founded a company back in 2011 called Matterhorn Transactions. And what they do is they provide uh, market trend data. So what's happening with mergers in the market, what's happening with credit agreements, commitment letters, uh, you name it. And, and we started doing that in 2011. We would have attorneys go through all of these deals and code them according to very granular level um, uh, you know, different points of data so that you could then put them all together and say, okay, what's the trend? What's the average go shop provision of the past three months or, or whatever you want for your particular client. And, and then we said, okay, after the years of doing this, as the technology um, with natural language processing was advancing, how can we learn from this treasure trove of data that we have from all of these attorneys and putting all this information? And we've, um, over and over again, we've worked with um, different um, technologies and, and it's, it's really exciting and really promising. Um, you know, I, I, I would, some people are sort of starry-eyed about natural language processing. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not that, so I think it's really a helpful tool at this point um, where you can sort of give the, the technology can go through and find a lot of interesting bits of information. Um, but this, at the end of the day, I still think that it is important for attorneys themselves, again, that's my, that's my market, um, to, to take that and use that as a tool as, a, as opposed to sort of the end-all answer. So are we still decades away from, you know, replacing an assistant with an NLP program? Um, I don't know about decades. Um, we're, we're certainly not there yet. I think no. there's, a, there's a lot for, for human ingenuity and, you know, a lot of these um, just life, just, you know, mergers just like life are not boilerplate. Um, each company has its own demands um, and needs. And, and it's up to a sort of a thinking, rational person who knows relationships, who, under, who knows the different parties, knows who he's negotiating against um, to sort of ha have that more flexible framework. But I do think natural language processing is a great way and very efficient way to get us to, okay, what's the base? What's the template that we're working from? But then it's important for the people to jump in to build from there. Wow. What a great show. I had no idea that Washington believed in vaccinations and... I'm excited to know that NLP has, uh, you know, more promising futures than I thought. Not decades is good to hear. So maybe, maybe in about 10, 12 years, we can start seeing the first robotic uh, associate at a law firm, or maybe a little longer than that. Uh, I, you know, I think that the, the funny thing is that maybe doing what associates have been doing historically, but I just think that the roles just keep changing. So the, the, you know, there won't be sort of others oh, no longer law firm associates. It's instead there are law firm associates, but they're doing different things. Wonderful. Well, Logan, thank you so much and have a wonderful day. Congratulations on that beautiful baby of yours.